to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, bringing you the news to know for the week of May 25th. Happy Memorial Day. Hope you all are having somewhat of a fun time and socially distancing at the same time. All right, first article out of Healthcare IT News came out on May 22nd by Pat Jarrett. A modernized butler bell, how a virtual bedside assistant can better help patients. So the executive vice president of a company by the name of Orbita, O-R-B-I-T-A, I have no connection to them whatsoever. Um, the, the guy's name is Nick White. And his father, or was the father of one of his colleagues, it looks like, um, had to go to the bathroom and a nurse didn't respond to his call for help. So he tried to get up on his own, slipped, fell, and broke his hip. And that led him to be very motivated to help prevent this from happening to others. So they developed a smart speaker solution the tool called Orbita Assist involves putting a smart speaker at a patient's bedside, allowing the patient to speak their request, and for that request to be processed using a combination of machine learning and AI. That request then passes through a workflow queue and routes to a specific nurse or care worker for response. One facility saw a 34% reduction in falls within the first year of using Orbita Assist. So I highlight this story because I think it's cool tech. And I wish that my wife had it. She was recently in the hospital for some back surgery and the nurse didn't answer the call bell and also had a fall with a fracture. So I'm sensitive to these kinds of stories now, I guess, but I think the device is really interesting. The ability to tell the nurse, hey, I just need an extra pillow versus uh, I need to get up and go to the bathroom or I need pain medicines could elicit a very different response from the nurse. And I think this smart technology can be very interactive and really user-friendly for patients. If you say, hey, what, what are my schedules for today? And your EMR probably knows what's been ordered. And so it could just read back saying, yo, you're getting a CAT scan and you had blood work done and we're waiting on results and things like that. So I think it's really cool technology. The downside, there is a device in every room that has to be purchased, which is going to be expensive, and none of us have any money right now. That's one. And number two is there's the privacy concerns. Are families and patients okay that every conversation will be listened to? Even if it's not being, no one's actually listening to that conversation, but it's possible it's a speaker and it's recording things. Um, it's a microphone, excuse me. I think most patients are pretty comfortable with this technology now. It's in a lot of our homes. We've kind of gotten over that privacy thing. In the era of COVID, I think having a patient press a call bell, having a nurse go in to find out what's wrong with the patient, would be so much better if they could just communicate directly and through one of these bedside devices. So keep an eye out for this. I think it's great technology. Where I see it going, is that providers will be able to do their notes by talking to the patient and the speaker will, the microphone will capture 
all of the conversation, and then when the doctor walks out of the room, the note's done, the orders are placed. That's where we're heading. So I do think if I was building a new hospital right now, I absolutely would wire in for these devices all over, every single room. It's going to be that commonplace. Next article, also out of Healthcare IT News, hospital EHR spending projected to reach 9.9 .9 billion by 2024. This one came out May 21st. U.S. expenditures on electronic health records are forecast to total $19.9 billion in 2024, according to the report, which predicts that hospital EHR spending will reach $9.9 billion. Nursing and residential care facilities represent the fastest growing segment of EHR users, with spending projected to increase 19% every year until 2024. The article goes on, but that's the highlights. And why do I bring this up? Because the more money we're spending to our EHR vendors, the less we can spend on nurses, on care assistants, on technology that gets patients out of hospitals. So I'm not a huge fan about the amount of money that's going into these EHR companies. I think it could be better used, but we have absolutely no choice in the matter at this point. It would take regulation from the federal government to have any impact or significant innovation that would allow us to decrease our dependency upon the EHR vendors, which neither of which I see happening in the next five years. This one article comes out of Jamia Open, and this is their April issue. Using a custom mobile application for change management in an electronic health record implementation. And this comes out of the University of Vanderbilt. And what they did was really interesting. So tr traditionally, they said, organizations communicate through daily emails, printed documents, and town hall meetings. This is in the leading up to and during the go live and even after go live. And they were changing out from a homegrown EMR over to, I believe they switched to Epic. And so they wanted to have a tool in place that would help them track who's doing the training. Are they getting it done? Are they revising the workflows that they're supposed to be revising? So here's their next paragraph. Traditionally, teams tracked tasks through a spreadsheet or a task distribution checklist system. This type of system allows the opportunity to track tasks on a macro scale, but can, but can become cumbersome on a more granular level due to the organization's size. Word processing programs and spreadsheets placed on a shared drive have been used in the past to log and track the training of staff. These ways do not offer real-time mobile feedback about your previously completed training, the ability to seamlessly schedule training, or a window to view upcoming training courses. So they created their own app, and I think they called it Huddle. Hubble, Hubble, H-U-B-B-L. So they go on to say, we wanted users to be able to receive and complete work and then broadcast work completion easily. We disseminated tasks to users and published them on a readily available dashboard for medical center leadership to view. So in the pre-go live work, um, things such as approving workflows, completing training and reviewing role specific information that would be sent out. And then they had a way of tracking it when it came back in. During go live, they had things such as managing change requests, receiving feedback from key stakeholders, disseminating training material, supporting system evaluation and communication workarounds for poorly functioning components. 
and then post go live notifying people about educational sessions and providing easy access to help document and helping users as they rotated on and off the various services and needed to learn about EMR functionality as they switched. So there's a picture that you can't see of Hubble and nice big icons on, I'm assuming this is a smartphone and the buttons are what's new, go live a task list, tip sheets and training. And then there's some other sub menus under that uh, scheduling. It looks like you could schedule your training. You could create a ticket, things like that. So I really liked that they did this. It's interesting. This cost them $500,000 for the development of it. So that's a lot. And there are certainly tools on the market that do this kind of communication, but not all the things that they needed it to do. And I am not familiar with another go live where they use text messaging as the means of communication between everyone. So you had a problem you need to reach the command center, that's through their app. I think it's a great idea. I think every clinician is carrying a smartphone or is provided a smartphone through the organization. And this was a big facility. They had four hospitals. They went live with a big uh, bang launch. And I think they had 200 ambulatory clinics. So it's really hard to get real-time communication going in those environments. But with the text messaging, they were able to achieve that. I think it's great. I applaud them. And something to think about if you're planning a go live, can you do better than email in terms of a provider saying, hey, this functionality is not working for me. And they place a ticket and wait versus sending a text message to someone in a command center who writes back, got it, working on it for you. That kind of response is awesome. Next article. Physician champions perspectives on end practices on electronic health record implementation, challenges and strategies, also out of Jamia Open in their April issue. Couple of paragraphs. Physician champions are boots on the ground physician leaders who facilitate the implementation of and transition to new health information technology systems within an organization. They are commonly cited as key personnel in health IT implementations, yet little research has focused on their practices and perspectives. So their results here are physician champions reported multiple challenges, including insufficient training, limited at the elbow support, unreliable communication with leadership and the EHR vendor, as well as flawed system design. To overcome these challenges, physician champions develop their own personalized training programs in a simulated context or in the live environment, sought and obtained more at the elbow support, both internally and externally, and adapted their department socio-technological context to make the system work better. I don't even know what that last part means, but I've experienced this, that physician at the elbow go live support where it's your own super users that you're developing to take time to pull them off the line and take a hit to productivity so that they can get trained up to become even better users of their EMR that takes time and therefore money and not something that the majority of IT systems are really interested in spending money on. So they try to find providers who are really strong already and say, okay, you're a super user. We're going live at this other hospital. Tag, you're it. Go down there and help them. Well, that's not sufficient training. 
that's setting someone up for failure. And the limited at the elbow support, that's because the ratio is somewhere between one trainer to 100, 150, 200 providers. So of course, it can be very difficult to provide that support. Mostly they're busy training new providers and never really get to helping existing providers optimize. The solution here is fantastic. These physician leaders stepped up and said, you know what, I need to get better and I recognize that, so I'm gonna teach myself. And so most EMR vendors have some ability for providers to improve themselves. It's just a matter of investing the time. And I think that's great. I think systems should help support that and block time or provide time or pay for time to make sure your super users are up to speed before a go live, or you're just asking for trouble. There's gonna be, you'll go live. I'm not saying the go live will fail, but you'll have disgruntled providers because they're not able to do that personalization and optimization piece, which we know drives end user satisfaction of the EMR. Next. This article also out of Jamia Open, use of patient generated health data across healthcare settings, implications for health systems. I thought this article also came out of Jamia April issue was interesting because of the growing prevalence of remote patient monitoring type tools and the patient generated tools, the Fitbits, the, the step counters, the glucometers, whatever it is that you're checking at home is definitely increasing. And so what this article goes on to say is the patients have high desire, the provider side, not so much. And we go into a couple of things that they define here. So wearable devices, mobile health apps, geolocation technologies, uh, all provide a novel way to capture information about health and well-being, monitor activity levels, improve self-awareness of health, and leverage tools to better manage health conditions. Examples included behavioral health conditions, metabolic conditions such as blood pressure and diabetes, musculoskeletal or progressive functional conditions such as MS, osteoarthritis, and cerebral palsy, cognitive conditions, pain, GI conditions, and perioperative care with an overwhelming focus on chronic versus acute conditions. So they list the types that they're looking at here is physical activity, which I imagine is a uh, step tracker of some kind, mood-related symptoms must be patient-entered, sleep, medication use, pain levels, blood pressure, GPS location data, and I won't go through the whole list because there's probably about 25 things on this list. And they also then talk about, well, how are they doing it? Is it wearable? Is it sensor? Is it medical device? Or is it patient-reported? And it kind of shows that's all across the board there. What I found really interesting is that 70% of patient-generated health data did not have the ability to integrate with the EHR. Again, why? Because the providers don't want it. We don't want the tsunami of data coming at us. We want information, not data. So if it were to summarize for me and say, hey, your patient's average blood pressure is 150 over 92, then I know to go do something. But just to give me a stream of blood pressures, a stream of steps walked, that's more than I really want, to be honest. 18% reported some level of EHR integration, which may have been manually importing it, and only 12% reported full EHR integration. 
the barriers experienced in the development of the use of this data, the most significant one was the integration into clinical records, and number two, organizational infrastructure or policies to support the use of that data, which I'm translating to mean we can't bill for it. And that is, of course, a problem in U.S. healthcare is that we do what gets reimbursed. So until there's decent payment for a provider's time to look at that data, think about it, and react to it, or that we are incentivized just to keep people out of the hospital, I don't think you'll see patient-generated health data take off until there's compensation change. And that's really what I wanted to get at that article. Uh, I'm sure many of you are involved in remote patient monitoring, particularly right now. This seems to have had a huge uptick during the COVID crisis. And patient-generated data from those tools, patients are entering, answering questionnaires. I am seeing some of that getting integrated, but more often than not, I am seeing a dashboard that people have to log into, and then they get the information from that. And usually it's case managers who are doing it. I'm not seeing the doctor's office in particular going into these tools yet. So it's mostly run out of pop health. Next article, this one comes out of Healthcare Innovation, May 19th, 2020, how technology is helping Arizona healthcare leaders prepare for COVID-19 surges. So what they wanted is real-time statewide visibility into facility bed capacity, provider availability, and inventories of critical medical equipment, such as ventilators. And so based on that information, the people who are running what they call the surge line can make decisions about where patients should be transferred for load balancing and faster access to much needed care. So it sounds like a big command center to me, and they're helping to direct care throughout the state. This is a quote from one of the leaders of the surge line. It's built to load level and monitor, but not to impede on the transfer systems already in place, as some health systems in the state already do have a transfer center facilitating patient movement for their organization. We didn't want to encumber those processes at all. So the surge line was built to sit on top of all the other transfer centers for all COVID patients. The benefit is that it provided a rural community with one number, a 1877 surge line phone number. And with that, they are essentially calling every single healthcare system all at once. So it's great for helping to coordinate care out in the rural areas. One of the comments of this, the reason why I talked about this article is from this next line. As we were starting the surge line off the ground, a few people reached out to me to say that when this is all done, let's not let it die since we have the technology and business intelligence in place that we have never had before, as well as other forward momentum. And I think that's a wonderful concept. The cooperation, the ability to communicate together and pull together in the same direction is only possible in a crisis. When the crisis ends, if there is an end, we go back to our competitive ways. And the concept of transferring patients between facilities will start to get its predictable lines drawn again of this hospital only refers to this facility and doesn't send patients to a closer facility because they have a better relationship with another one. So I think we should maintain these kinds of communications. The next crisis that hits us, it would be great if these systems were in place in every state. I don't see this happening on a federal level. The federal government has said this is a state problem. 
and I don't believe that that's going to change anytime soon. I think it'll be very difficult for the feds to get involved at such a granular level of patient transferring. So this is state HIEs that'll be taking the lead on this. In Maryland, we had some really good data as we went through this crisis. The ability to understand in our skilled nursing facilities what beds were available, that was really valuable. We did have a good understanding of the number of ICU beds and bed capacity and ventilators. And so that was really helpful information to help us plan and understand. Now, fortunately, we did not have a surge that overwhelmed our capacity that we needed to offload. And I don't believe anyone else in the state did either. But to have that capability in place if we needed to, there was no one number that we would call, although the health department and the governor were monitoring the situation, probably would have made that phone call if we needed to. The states in the middle of the country really didn't get hit that hard by COVID in comparison to the coasts. And so they set up a lot to get in place, may not have used it, and therefore may not see how valuable it could be. And I wonder if it'll be maintained when we go back to a more relaxed state. Next is just a quick article out of Healthcare Innovation, Ransomware in the Face of a Health Crisis on May 20th. And they're talking about how healthcare security leaders are responding to these vulnerabilities brought on during the COVID-19 crisis. I didn't know this particular number that they said here, but 764 healthcare providers were hit with ransomware attacks in 2019. That's a big number, much bigger than I would have guessed. I would have said 50, maybe 100 max, 764. That's a lot of health providers getting hit. Here's a quote from the article. One hospital chief information security officer who, after running a recent system scan, found that his organization stopped patching its systems and stopped making updates as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. The rationale behind the decision was that organization CIOs said the focus needed to be solely on operations and that patching updates or other IT changes had the potential to negatively impact them, a scenario that the IT team had to avoid at all costs in the face of a healthcare pandemic. Really tough call. If you had to make that call, take the risk of doing an update and maybe the system goes down versus the risk of getting ransomware and then your system's really down. And personally, I would err on the side of doing your routine maintenance. I don't think COVID says stop everything. I think you still do them at two in the morning when volumes tend to be lighter. And there certainly were hospitals that were not experiencing massive overflows that they were capable of doing updates. And if you have to bring in more people, then do it. I mean, do a lot of this can be done remotely. Make sure it goes well. Have your backup systems in place. Be able to revert back if you needed to. But I think it's pretty hard to uh, stand there in front of your board and go, well, yeah, we didn't take that update. We, we were kind of busy. I, that's just not going to work well. I don't recommend that approach. And I think we'll wrap it up there. That should be good enough for the news cycle. That's really all the major articles. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.